Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please also go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information, and feel free to send a comment via our contact page. Or you can email me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, we have finally reached chapter four of the Book of Romans, our in our series where we overview this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. We are, believe it or not, even though it's been a few weeks, we're we're just hitting the highlights. And so today I am excited to uh, get to talk about chapter four. There's so much depth here. I have to do the disclaimer again that we are not going to explore the parsing of every word And we're just going to hit the main topics. But if you recall, just by way of overview, Paul has written this compendium of theology, this this sort of data dump of beautiful theology to the church at Rome. And for our benefit as part of the inspired canon of scripture. And he did so in the first century. And you know that. And uh, he wrote the letter from Corinth, and the theme is the righteousness of God, and a sub-theme, another theme, is uh, justification by faith. So we've just walked through, in uh, uh, over the last two weeks, chapter three. In chapter one, we talked about immorality, the immoral, Paul focuses on. In chapter two, we f- talked about the moralist, and then in chapter three, we're in this sort of, Paul paints this courtroom scene and charges us. After anticipating a couple of objections early in the chapter, he charges us, every person, every single person who's ever been born on this earth with 14 counts of sin. And then he talks about justification by faith in chapter three. Paul Washer often says that whenever given the opportunity, he wants to preach on Romans three. And there's there's a reason for that. Justification by faith, this this gospel of Jesus Christ that is talked about there is is the most beautiful of topics in all of theology. And so Paul has talked at the end of that chapter about what becomes of our boasting. It's excluded. And he talks about this law of faith. He's using clever language that the people would have related to. And he talks about the Jews and Gentiles, the gospel going to the Jews and Gentiles. So Paul is using judicial language. I talked about the scene I sort of see in my mind when I read that chapter, when I read this this part of Romans. He's really going after man's sin, underlying sin of self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And I know I say that a lot when I talk about this book, but you just have to. And and this self-sufficiency manifests a couple of different ways. In chapter one, he's talking about the immoral, as I said a minute ago, and he, and he he's really saying they are self-sufficient because they just disregard the law altogether. They disregard God altogether and just live in sin. And there's some consequences of that, some hardening of the heart that happens 
this reprobation that happens. But then in chapter two, and I, I, I've said many times now that I think these people are even more difficult. And this is where we all find ourselves. These are the moralists who say, no, I got to do my part. I've got to be good enough. I've got to be good enough to merit God's favor. And sometimes we don't say it out loud or even think it, but, but we think that we can muster up enough goodness to earn God's favor. I worried for years, and I've said this on this podcast before, that when I trusted Christ as a young person, that I might not have said the right words in the prayer I prayed. I might not have thought the right things. How could I know that I had done enough? And it wasn't until I studied this book, and the reason I wanted to walk through this book of Romans is I know just from anecdotally from conversations I've had with people over the years, and I'm getting a little bolder in having these conversations with friends. Thankfully, I figured out some ways to do so respectfully, and I find that lots of people have struggled with the assurance of their salvation because they base it on this sense of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, even in salvation, even in a biblical theme. So if that applies to you, let's say it this way, whether that applies to you or not, I think you're going to find chapter four very interesting. Paul is continuing to use judicial language. He calls two witnesses, sort of, into the courtroom that we've talked about already. And the Jews would expect this, just so you know, the Jewish people would expect this under the law. Two witnesses were required, and he calls Abraham and David of all people. And he cites circumcision as a sign of the righteousness of God that is imputed by faith. And many believe this sign, many commentators will say this sign is a parallel to baptism today. So Paul continues to drive home this judicial theme. And what he's going to say here, and I'm going to read it, is that Abraham was counted righteous prior to his circumcision. Abraham received, wait for it, Paul makes it clear that Abraham received the promise that he would be the heir of the world through the righteousness of faith rather than through the law. Paul's going to then restate the purpose of the law, and then he's going to say that the gospel of salvation by faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, this doctrine of justification by faith is not just for the Jewish people, but for all nations, and Abraham is the father of us all. In case you've missed this all these years, and I did, you're in good company. Abraham received imputed righteousness by faith. God himself will impute to us who believe this same righteousness that was imputed to Abraham. He was delivered up for our offenses and raised for our justification. So let's read it. So this is Romans chapter 4, verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Bible, English Standard Version. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And we're in verse 7 now. This is the quote from David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. All right. So, so far, here's what we have. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is presenting, he's in the courtroom still, using judicial language, and he's presenting evidence from these two witnesses. Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. And he says, now to the one who works, if this has been a result of works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So this justification by faith, it goes against our tendency to think we have to work for it. It is common. It is common even among Christians who say, oh, I understand that, to still think we have to work for our salvation or work to justify our salvation, to work to validate our salvation. And Paul is saying that's not the case. But he, and he goes on in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then... Was it counted to him? Listen to this. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Now this in my classrooms at Circle Christian School among these really bright 11th to 12th graders, this is often an aha moment. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of, of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So this righteousness by faith occurred before he was circumcised, before he had completed this sign of obedience under the law. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul saying the purpose of this justification of Abraham by faith was to show the Gentiles that this justification is for them and also to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. So whether Jew or Gentile, justification is by faith. It couldn't be any clearer. If you're driving or doing some other activity and you want to read this, it's again, it's Romans 4, just a powerful section. I've just read verses 1 through 12. But Paul goes on to drive home this and a couple of other points. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Again, this is not what I remember being taught as a youngster. It is not what I remember being taught as a young adult. 
And maybe I was taught the truth, but I didn't understand it. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, reading verse 13 again, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law, Paul teaches this consistently. You're going to see this throughout this letter. The law is our teacher. It is to show us our sin, to reveal to us God's perfect standard. It reveals God's character to us, but it doesn't save us. It just makes us aware of our need for a Savior. Verse 16 That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I'm at verse 18 now. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, Sarah being his wife. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words... It was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us, who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Wow. There is so much truth here. I often... In my own study, and I think I've observed this from pastors and Bible teachers, Romans 4 is sometimes a a footnote to a study of the book of Romans. Well, it, it shouldn't be. It's incredibly important. Chapter 5 is going to talk about our reconciliation with God through faith. And he talks about Adam, and, and it can be kind of complicated. But it's, again, beautiful, beautiful truth. And then chapter 6, 7, and 8 just continue to build all the way really through 12. We continue, Paul continues to build this, this beautiful argument. But in, but in chapter 4, he really is bringing in witnesses. He's, he's talking about a couple of concepts that he carries on through the remainder of this book, the remainder of this letter. And those concepts are these. Justification by faith is not something that was an afterthought 
again, as I've said before, the cross was not plan B. The cross of Jesus Christ was plan A. It is the center of human history and was God's plan from before the foundations of the earth. In eternity past, this was God's plan of salvation, this justification by faith. Now, what we do, what we tend to do, and I think the reason Paul makes these points again and again from different perspectives is we take truth and then we sort of superimpose our own view as humans on the truth or we see the truth through the eyes of self-reliant, self-sufficient humans. And so it looks something like this. We think something like this. This is this is kind of the thought process that I had for a good number of years of my, all the way through my young adult life. That is, well, I've prayed a prayer. I walked down an aisle. I was baptized. And now I'm supposed to live my life in a certain way. I'm supposed to live like a good Christian. And I heard many, many sermons on this. And I'm not sure they said it this way, but here's what I heard. Therefore, I'd better be good And if I'm good, that will be evidence that this salvation was real. And being good meant kind of living by a checklist. Now, I didn't have an actual checklist. I know I've said that before. I've mentioned this checklist concept. Well, I I didn't have an actual checklist. I, Of course, I didn't. But I learned through Bible lessons from a very young age, through sermons throughout my youth and into adulthood, that Christians do certain things and they don't do other things. Now, what happens when we're justified by faith? God saves us. He redeems us. He transforms us. And then we begin this life of some call it sanctification. Others, uh, spiritual maturity, a perseverance of the saints, It's pursuing, then at that point, we pursue God and we grow in him. We really, another way to say it is we walk by faith. We talked about that verse that says from faith to faith or from faith for faith. It's the idea that faith saves us. The gospel is essential for our salvation, but it's also essential for for how we live going forward. So Paul's going to teach us as we go forward through this letter that, yes, we're saved by faith, but we also walk by faith. We live faithfully. Now, we tend to think, in America especially, a couple of things that are erroneous. And I'm going to interrupt this series next week and have my friend, Pastor Charlie Parrish from Foothills Community Church up in Marble Hill, Georgia, with me for, I believe it's a fourth time this year. And we're going to talk about the prosperity gospel. And that's a complicated topic, but I think it works. I think it dovetails nicely with these truths in in Romans 4. But what we tend to think is that if we muster up enough faith, then we can be saved. And we're responsible for mustering up this faith. And then our walk by faith involves continuing to do that and I've heard so much conflicting teaching because this notion of our mustering up our faith is heretical. And so when pastors like Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn, they're kind of the poster children for this, 
when pastors teach this doctrine, they don't quite know how to teach it. They'll say things like there's a guy in Texas named Robert Morris, who I've talked about before, who who says basically you give to get is kind of one of his themes. And if you muster up enough faith and you're a generous giver, then God blesses you. And if you ask him the right way and you have enough faith, then he'll bless you. And he takes that truth. There is some truth to that. We do walk by faith as Christians, but God hasn't promised to bless us in material terms. And it makes people doubt it. I remember growing up learning that, oh, if you're truly saved, you won't have any doubts. Or if your faith is strong enough, if you live a good enough life, if you do the right things, then God will bless you with more faith and more assurance. And if he's not blessing you, then that's a sign that you should worry about the authenticity of your faith. And what I heard when I heard those sermons is, you know, the entire rest of the youth group seems to get this or the entire rest of the church as I was an adult seems to get this, but I don't understand that. And when I read scripture, I know I'm not a scholar necessarily, a Bible scholar necessarily, but I don't see it. I don't get it. I don't understand what my works have to do with anything. And in a weird way, my being perplexed was correct. It is God who provides faith Our faith grows as we pray and spend time in his word. And we're not responsible for this big mountain of faith. We're not responsible for saving ourselves. And we're certainly not responsible for proving that our justification is valid through our sanctification. Now, if God's love for a person, in my opinion, and I think my opinion is based on scripture, If God's love for a person grips us, if we recognize God's love, grace, and mercy, let's just talk about those three concepts. We recognize our sinful state that Paul has outlined in Romans 3, that there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we realize our helpless state, that we're dead in our trespasses and sin, that we are deader than dead. We are incapable of saving ourselves. If we recognize that and the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made, God incarnate, God in the flesh made for us, and that he offers salvation, this redemption, this propitiation for our sins, this forceful expiation, if we recognize that that is appropriated by repentance and faith, and we come to the end of our self-reliant sin, then we aren't going to turn on a dime and say, okay, then I can live how I want to live now. I'm going to go be an antinomian. I'm going to live against the law. I'm going to live as if my philosophy is eat, drink, and be merry. Now, do Christians who are truly born again, truly saved, fall into sin and live sinful lives and make bad decisions from time to time? Of course. Yes. That's not what we're talking about here. But do true Christians who've truly been saved, who truly have saving faith in Jesus Christ, go make it their mission to live in sin over a long period of time, for say for the rest of their lives, whatever that is? No. No, we're gripped 
you can't look at the cross of Jesus Christ. We can't acknowledge his resurrection. We can't acknowledge his saving work in our lives and recognize what that means and then depart from this notion of walking by faith. Now, if you have, like I do, perfectionistic tendencies, sometimes it can look like OCD or type A personality, it's sometimes called, but if you want to wake up early, grab life by the throat and get everything done and do it really well. There's nothing wrong with that, but if we become self-reliant, even in our walk by faith, then we're going to live in a constant state of turmoil, a constant state of, I'm grabbing the reins, I can do well, I can live a life that honors God on my own. And it doesn't work that way. We trust in Him, we lean on Him, we rely on Him as we walk by faith, and Paul's going to explain how we do that. I get tremendous comfort knowing that Romans 4 teaches a couple of truths that are so powerful. One is justification by faith again. I love the whole book, the whole letter, because justification by faith is in every verse, every sentence. And it's just beautiful that Paul continues to drive home this point. This notion that we have to be good enough Islam is interesting in that it's primary, and if you're a Muslim and you're listening to this, just know this. I totally get the fact that your religion is based on submission to Allah. And I also get the fact that that is an incredibly frustrating way to live. And it's not the way the God of Scripture, the God of this universe intended us to live. I always thought growing up that if I'm just humble enough and there's even self-sufficiency in my humility, that if I make myself subject to others, if I don't curse, if I live a certain lifestyle, you can take that. The problem with that kind of living is you can take that so far that you don't eat certain things, you don't drink certain things, you don't say certain things, you don't go certain places, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, because you want to earn God's favor yourself. And if you live a life like that, you live a very frustrating, defeated life. I even heard this doctrine of confession of sins. You'll hear this notion, and I know I'm probably shocking some of you with some of these things that I'm rambling on about here, but you'll hear this notion of keeping clear accounts before God. Now, I understand what confession of sin is. And it is important for us to be mindful of our sin. It is important for us to be a good testimony, a good example for the rest of the world. I'm not suggesting that it's not important. But our walk by faith is a communion with God, a relationship with God. It is not a merit system. It's not a system of doing good things to earn merit badges and getting demerits for our missteps. Are there consequences to sin? Yes, of course there are. Yes, there are earthly and and long-term earthly and otherwise consequences of sin. The wages of sin is the outcome. The product of sin is death, and that shows up in various ways. I'm not condoning sin, but I am saying that we can try Muslim-like submission. 
We can keep a checklist. We can beat ourselves up when we do wrong. We can move the standard as far as we think it can possibly be moved. We can become monks and deny the flesh. We can live in asceticism, which we talked about a few weeks ago, where this denial is our religion, denial of self, and wonder in lost frustration forever still trying to live a life of of self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. This surrender that Paul talks about, this faith in Jesus Christ, this forward-looking faith that Abraham had that was counted to him as righteousness is repentance. It is surrendering myself, recognizing I cannot do this. I cannot save myself. I cannot live a life that merits God's favor. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, you're thinking, I've been taught in my church, whether it's Catholic or some other church, a lot of Protestant churches teach some version of this, if you listen carefully. And I've been so frustrated because it doesn't feel like I can do this. Like I can merit, you know, and I'm not sure how much good I have to do to offset my bad. And I can't quite keep score. I kind of need a report card, but I don't have one. What a frustrating, miserable life. But think about the beauty of what Paul is teaching here. Go home and read this. Read chapters one through four, and then send me an email at john at johnwarrenmedia.com and tell me what you see. Because what you see is that we reach the end of ourselves. We turn from the sin of self-sufficiency, whether it's immorality in chapter one or our moralism in chapter two. And, and we put our trust in Christ. We realize that he alone conquered sin and death. He did what we could not do. Hear that. Please hear that truth. He alone conquered sin and death and did what we cannot do. And we simply trust him by faith. And you say, how much faith? A lot of people struggle with, is my faith sufficient? No, your faith's not sufficient. And that's not the point. R.C. Sproul once said, when asked how much faith do you need, he kind of walked through a litany with a friend. You know, do you have a lot? Do you have a good amount? Do you have some, you know, do you have any? And our faith is imperfect. But this faith in Christ, this putting our trust in him is necessary for our salvation. Now, in case I have, for some of you, sugarcoated this notion of works, I want to make a couple of comments. In the book of James, James talks about our faith without works being dead. One of the things that happens and what that means, that doctrine that's taught there, is really, if we're truly saved, if we've truly been gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ and expressed our faith in him, if we've truly trusted him for our salvation, then our lives do begin to change because we're overwhelmed with his love and our pattern of living changes. It's less self-reliant and more Christ-reliant. We're trusting in him as we walk by faith. I have a pastor friend that, that I used to play golf with all the time. And I will honestly tell you that his, I guess I should say candidly tell you that his life, watching him live his life was such a good example to me. He clearly understood this doctrine. As we live lives that are dependent on Christ, reliant on him and not reliant on ourselves, 
and we submit to the implications of that. We began this process called sanctification, and Paul's going to cover this. The good news is, if this sounds like rambling to you, when we get to chapter 8, Paul's going to talk about this notion of our being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That I'll just say it real simply. It was predetermined. <laughs> That's the best synonym I can come up with. That those who would put their trust in Christ would be conformed to his image, would be justified, would be sanctified, and ultimately glorified. And Paul spells that out in Romans 8. So there's this beautiful promise that that's what our lives will look like. First John is written, the book of First John, so that we can examine ourselves. It calls us to examine ourselves to see if that is happening in our lives. And if it's not, then we should call into question our faith. It's not something we judge each other with necessarily, but First John does teach that our lives will be transformed, that we will be changed as we walk by faith, as we not only have saving faith, but our walk, our Christian walk is by faith. But this chapter is beautiful because it also teaches the truth that no, the gospel, as much as some teachers get this wrong in the Old Testament, there was no justification through the law was imperfect. The sacrifice system and all the other implications of the law did not save people. People were saved in the Old Testament by faith. The other implication of that is that if you've worried that, wait a minute, I'm a Gentile, I'm not Jewish, is the gospel for me? There seems to be a lot of talk about Jewish people, and including the Pharisees in the New Testament. Is the gospel for me? Well, yes, Paul says that so clearly. Abraham is, in a sense, your father too. And so Paul spells this out. When you get home, read chapter 4. If you've read along with us through this series, read chapter four and you'll see that, yes, Abraham was justified by faith, Gentiles are justified by faith, and Jewish people are justified by faith. Paul makes those references using circumcision, and if you read the chapter, you'll see that. The gospel has gone to the Gentiles. There's an objection coming up in a few chapters that we're going to read about where some of the Pharisees said, wait a minute, how can you do this? And Paul's going to explain that rather clearly. So there's a beautiful promise here to all of us that justification is by faith. There are two witnesses brought into the courtroom, Abraham and David. Next week, I'm going to have Charlie Parrish with us again to talk about the prosperity gospel, and we'll reference these truths again. And then we'll come back to Romans the following week and two weeks to talk about chapter five, this peace with God, this reconciliation that we enjoy with him by faith. These are beautiful truths, beautiful, profound truths. I hope you'll enjoy the rest of this series. And in the meantime, please share these episodes with friends. This epistle has meant so much to me, as I've said again and again. And I believe that these truths are essential for all of life. I think this is liberating to realize these doctrines of grace, God's grace and its sufficiency, his mercy toward us, his love for us as demonstrated in his son, this beautiful gospel Paul is spelling out, this justification by faith is liberating. I find Christians live frustrating lives of sin and trying to manage their lives by checklist trying to wake up earlier and trying to do better 
and reading every self-improvement book we can get our hands on. And there's nothing wrong with some of those books. And some of those books that are true to the gospel, there's certainly nothing wrong with. And waking up early and working hard is terrific. But if we're doing it because we're self-reliant, if we're doing it because of our moralism, then we're missing the point. It is trusting in Christ, resting in Him, and walking by faith that is the key to life. So please go to uh, johnwarrenmedia.com for more information about our work. I hope you'll share the website, share this episode on social media with your friends. This is, is just such meaningful truth, meaningful theology, and it just gets better. As we go through this book, Paul builds his case. He doesn't jump from topic to topic like I do sometimes rambling on in these podcast episodes. He builds a case and is constantly referencing, here's what I've said so far. And because of this, the following is true. And then he'll do it again a couple of chapters later. Here's what I've said so far. And because of this, this is true. And he, and he just looks at all of the facets of this beautiful theology of life, this beautiful doctrine of justification by faith. So again, please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information, and please feel free to send an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. I answer every inquiry and welcome your feedback. Thank you for your support. We are now with this episode at the one-year point, amazingly, for Relentless Truth with John Warren, this podcast. And what a blessing. Thanks be to God for this opportunity. It has just been a pleasure to do this for the last year, and I look forward to many more, God willing, many more episodes. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.